0: All right. Well, we're going to cover two chapters today, Um, but the sermon is not as long as you think it would be. So go ahead and turn to to Nehemiah chapter eleven. Nehemiah chapter eleven. Y'all know this um, as you're turning. You know, if you watch TV, even now, um, you can see what we're in store for the next year or so. Which is a whole lot of political garbage, right we're going to elect a president uh, next year and uh, so so we're, we're going to be inundated with debates and political ads and all that goes along with it and in Nehemiah eleven we see that uh, the people here are, are they've come to a situation where they're faced with a with an issue, a national issue, but instead of voting, they flip a coin to determine what they should do. actually, what they did was uh, they cast lots, that's the biblical phrase, is, is casting lots, and that's, casting lots in the Old Testament was kind of like throwing dice, right? that's what it was, but, but uh, that's how they determined God's will. They used it in the book of Acts, um, the disciples, uh, they, they tried to figure out uh, how to replace Judas and who they were going to replace Judas with, Acts 126, it says, then they cast lots, and the lot fell to, to Matthias, so he was added to the 11 disciples. So it seemed like they're playing poker. It seemed like they were kind of gambling, but that's not what was happening, that they didn't believe in luck or chance. They were actually so so committed to the sovereignty of God, and they knew God would direct his will uh, in the casting of the lots. So the outcome would be whatever happened in the casting of the lots, the outcome would be according to the providence of God. And Proverbs 16:33 says, the lot is cast into the lap, but its ver- every decision is from the Lord. Amen. So the votes are cast by the people, but the election is determined by the Lord. Y'all, y'all write that down. Y'all, y'all get that and understand that and let that soak in. The, the votes are cast by the people, but the, the election is determined by the Lord. That's true even today right? That's one of the biblical principles that so many people get wrong, especially Christians. We get that part of it so wrong today. So many people right now are refusing to pray for or even recognize that Donald Trump as our president. And the fact of the matter is, I'm not a huge fan of the things that he says. I'm not a huge fan of how he uses social media. He has terrible communication skills, Right? But the fact of the matter is, I know that God placed him in that position as the President of the United States for a purpose. It's God's will that, that our leaders are placed where they're placed. God determines who will be our leaders. I may mean, not like the way he speaks, but I should pray for him and, and pray that God's will be done through him because God put him there. And listen to me, God don't make mistakes. Amen. So, we're going to cover two chapters this morning, chapters 11 and 12, and I know it's a lot, uh, and I think these two chapters combined, though, will give us some really good insight in how God desires for us to live. So if you'll stand, we're going to, we're going to read both chapters, uh, and if you can't stand that long, you can see it, but Braden, go ahead.
1: Now the leaders of the people stayed in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots for one out of ten to come and live in Jerusalem, the holy city. While the other nine-tenths remained in their towns, the people praised all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. These are the heads of the province who stayed in Jerusalem, but in the villages of Judah each lived on his own property in their towns—the Israelites, priests, Levites, temple servants and descendants of Solomon's servants, while some of the descendants of Judah and Benjamin settled in Jerusalem. Judah's descendants—Athiah, son of Geziah son of Zechariah, son of Amariah, son of Shephetiah, son of Mahalileh, of Perez' descendants, and Maaseah, son of Barak, son of Colhoz, son of Haziah, son of Adiah, son of Joerim, son of Zechariah, a descendant of the Shilonite. The total number of Perez' descendants who settled in Jerusalem was 468 capable men. These were Benjamin's descendants. Salu son of Mashullam, son of Joed, son of Padiah, son of Koliah, son of Maaseah, son of Ithiel, son of Jeshiah, and after him, Gabaiah and Sali, 928. Joel, son of Zikri, was the officer over them. And Judah, son of Hasanua was second in command over the city. The priests, Jediah, son of Joyarib, Jacob, and Sariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Meshullam, son of Zadok, son of Miraiah, son of Ahita, the chief official of God's temple and their relatives who did the work at the temple, 822. Adiah, son of Jeroham, son of Peleliah, son of Amzai, son of Zechariah, son of Pasher, son of Malkijah, and his relatives, the leaders of families, 242. Amashzai, son of Azarel, son of Azar son of Meshulamoth, son of Immer, and their relatives, capable men, 128. Zabdiel, son of Hagadolam, was their chief. The Levites, Shemiah, son of Hashab, son of Azrikim, son of Hashabiah, son of Bunai, and Shabbathah, and Jezebed, from the leaders of the Levites who supervised the work outside the house of God. Madaniah, son of Micah, son of Zabdoth, son of Asaph, the leader who began the thanksgiving and prayer, Bacbakiah, second among his relatives, and Abda, son of Shemua, son of Galen, son of Jeduthun, all the Levites in the holy city, 284. The gatekeepers, Acha, Talman, and their relatives who guarded the gates, 172. The rest of Israel, the priests and the Levites, were in all the villages of Judah, each on his own inherited property. The temple servants lived on Ophel. Zihah and Gishbah supervised the temple servants. The leader of the Levites in Jerusalem was Uzzi, son of Benai, son of Hashabiah, son of Mattaniah, son of Micah, of the descendants of Asaph, who were singers for the service of God's house. There was, in fact, a command of the king regarding them, and an ordinance regulating the singers' daily tasks. Pethahiah, son of Meshezabel, of the descendants of Zerah, son of Judah, was the king's agent in every matter concerning the people. As for the farming settlements with their fields, some of Judah's descendants lived in Kiriath Arba and its villages, Dibon and its villages, and Jacabzeel and its villages, in Jeshua, Maladah, Hazer Shuel, and Beersheba and its villages, in Ziklag, and Makona and its villages, in Enramon, Zorah, Jarmuth, and Zenoah, and Adullam with their villages, and Lashish with its fields, and Azekah and its villages. So they settled from Beersheba to the valley of Hinnom. Benjamin's descendants from Geba, Mikmash, Aija, and Bethel and its villages, Anathoth, Nah, Ananiah, Hazor, Ramah, Gideon, Hadid, Zeboim, Nabalat, Lod, and Ono, the Valley of Craftsmen. Some of the Judean divisions of Levites were in Benjamin. These are the priests and Levites who went up with Zerubbabel son of Shealtiel and with Jeshua, Saraiah, Jeremiah, Ezra, Amariah, Malak, Hadash, Shechaniah, Rehu, Meramoth, Ido, Ginnathoi, Abijah, Midjaman, Meadiah, Bilgah, Shemaiah, Joyarib, Jediah, Salu, Amuk, Hilkiah, Jediah. These were the leaders of the priests and their relatives in the days of Jeshua. The Levites, Jeshua, Binuai, Cadmiel, Sherebiah, Judah, and Mataniah. He and his relatives were in charge of the praise songs, Bakbukiah, Ani, and their relatives stood opposite them in the services. Jeshua fathered Joachim. Joachim fathered Eliashib. Eliashib fathered Joyada. Joyada fathered Jonathan. And Jonathan fathered Jadua. In the days of Joiakim the leaders of the priestly families were Mariah of Sariah, Hananiah of Jeremiah, Mashalam of Ezra, Jehohanan of Amariah, Jonathan of of Malachi, Joseph of Shebaniah, Adna of Haram, Helkiah of Marioth, Zechariah of Ido, Meshallam of Ginnathon, Zikri of Abijah, Piltai of Moadiah, of Maniamin, Shamua of Bilgah, Jonathan of Shemiah, Matani of Joyarib, Uzi of Jediah, Kali of Sali, Eber of Amon. Hashabiah of Hilkiah, and Nethanel of Jediah. In the days of Eliashib, Joyada, Johanan, and Jadua, the leaders of the families of the Levites and priests were recorded while Darius the Persian ruled. Levi's descendants, the leaders of families, were recorded in the book of the historical records during the days of Johanan, son of Eliashib. The leaders of the Levites, Hashabiah, Sherebiah, and Jeshua, son of Kadmiel, along with their relatives opposite them, gave praise and thanks division by division, as David, the man of God, had prescribed. This included Mataniah, Bakbakiah, and Obadiah, Meshullam, Talman, and Achab were gatekeepers who guarded the storerooms at the gates. These served in the days of Joachim, son of Jeshua. Son of Jazadak, and in the days of Nehemiah the governor and Ezra the priest and scribe. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sent for the Levites wherever they lived and brought them to Jerusalem to celebrate the joyous dedication with thanksgiving and singing accompanied by cymbals, harps, and lyres. The singers gathered from the region around Jerusalem, from the villages of the Netophathites, from Beth Gilgal and from the fields of Geba and Asmaveth, for they had built villages for themselves around Jerusalem. After the priests and Levites had purified themselves, they purified the people, the gates, and the wall. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up on top of the wall, and I appointed two large processions that gave thanks. One went to the right on the wall toward the dung gate. Hoshaiah and half the leaders of Judah followed, along with Azariah, Ezra, Meshullam. Judah, Benjamin, Shemiah, Jeremiah, and some of the priests' sons with trumpets, and Zechariah son of Jonathan, son of Shemiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micaiah, son of Zachar, son of Asaph followed as well as his relatives Shemiah, Azarel, Melalai, Gilalai, Maai, Nethanel, Judah, and Hanana, with the musical instruments of David the man of God. Ezra the scribe went in front of them. At the fountain gate they climbed the steps of the city of David, on the ascent of the wall, and went above the house of David to the water gate on the east. The second thanksgiving procession went to the left, and I followed it with half the people along the top of the wall, past the tower of the ovens to the broad wall, above the gate of Ephraim, and by the old gate, the fish gate, the tower of Hananel, and the tower of the hundred to the sheep gate. They stopped at the gate of the guard. The two thanksgiving processions stood in the house of God. So did I and half of the officials accompanying me, as well as the priests, Eliakim, Maaseah, Menahem, Micaiah, Elioenah, Zechariah, and Hananiah with trumpets, and Maaseah, Shemaiah, Eliezer, Uzi, Jehohanan, Malkijah, Elam, and Ezer, then the singers sang with Jezrahiah as the leader. On that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced because God had given them great joy. The women and children also celebrated, and Jerusalem's rejoicing was heard far away. On that same day men were placed in charge of the rooms that housed the supplies, contributions, first fruits, and tents. The legally required portions for the priests and Levites were gathered from the village fields because Judah was grateful to the priests and Levites who were serving. They performed the service of their God and the service of purification, along with the singers and gatekeepers, as David and his son Solomon had prescribed. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there were leaders of the singers and songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. So in the days of Zerubbabel and Nehemiah, all Israel contributed the daily portions for the singers and gatekeepers. They also set aside daily portions for the Levites, and the Levites set aside daily portions for the descendants of Aaron.
0: How in the world are we going to cover all that? Now Let's pray. Father, Lord, we need your help this morning. Father, uh, and we, we come to you this morning with humble hearts. Lord, as we ask you to fall upon this place, Lord, we know your Holy Spirit is here because... We have believers amongst us in this room who are full of your spirit. And so, Lord, I just pray that your spirit go to work amongst us this morning, opening every eye and heart and ear to your truth and what it is that you want us to take from this message this morning, Lord. We love you. We give you all the honor, praise, and glory. It's in Jesus' holy name that we pray. And everybody says, Amen. All right, so now the the wall in Jerusalem's been built, right? It's been rebuilt. And it was important now for the for the builders to repopulate the city and help help the city grow, the people grow. And some of the people um, came to the uh, to the city willingly. They and other people had to be drafted in. Right? They had to be brought in and convinced to come in. We see it in, in chapter 11. If you turn back chapter 11, verse 1. Now the leaders of the people stayed in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots for one out of ten to come and live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while the other nine-tenths remained in their towns. So you remember last week we talked about, uh, we talked about uh, the people promising to tithe their produce and their, and their income. Well, now Nehemiah decides to tithe the people. He's tithing the people. He's organizing for 10 percent of them to come and move to the new city. Uh, And these people came, uh, the people that came to to live in the city had four traits uh, that were kind of countercultural. And these were four traits that we're going to talk about here in the first part of the message. Uh, They have application for us, regardless of who our president is, regardless of who's in the White House or who's in charge in leadership positions. This is how God wants us to live all right these four traits that uh, the people who moved into jerusalem these traits that they showed so that's our first point four traits to emulate four traits to emulate and the first one is to move out of your comfort zone move out of your comfort zone most of the families that uh, were were living outside of jerusalem They depended on the land that they lived on. They depended on uh, where they were living. They worked the land. They grew their own food. And uh, over the years, they developed their own pattern for for living. And for a lot of them, the thought of leaving their comfort zone was terrifying. It scared them to death. But some of them left their homes. They left their relatives. They left their friends and their jobs and, and everything that they ever knew, their comfortable routines, they left it. And they set up a new life in a completely, entirely different environment. So would you be willing to leave your comfort zone for the kingdom of God? Would you? Because God doesn't call us to live comfortably. He calls us to live outside of our comfort. I don't know what God's asking you to do individually, but I know that he wants you to be available. He does. And same for the church right here at Crossway. Same for our church. I don't know what God's going to ask us to do tomorrow, but are we available and are we willing to say, yes, Lord? Or are we comfortable doing what we've always been doing? Because we know when we've already come to the conclusion what we've been doing, it obviously is not working. So are we available to what the Lord wants us to do? I'll never forget... um, what God did a couple of years ago in my own life. Um, And it was a result of a prayer that I prayed. It was the second time I come back from Nicaragua. Um, And after I got home from that second trip, not long afterwards, I prayed and asked God uh, and told him I was willing to do whatever he wanted me to do and go wherever he wanted me to go. And it was two days from the time that I prayed that prayer that I got a message from a guy that I built a relationship and a friendship with that took me to Pakistan. Two days after I prayed that prayer, you tell me, God, wasn't it work in that? um, So one of one of the most heavily Muslim countries in this world. Let me tell you something, that trip that we took wasn't in my comfort zone. It wasn't. It wasn't in my wife's comfort zone. What's God asking you to do in your own life that might stretch you? What do you think God is asking Crossway to do that might stretch us? Maybe God wants you to go to Pakistan. Maybe he wants you just to share the gospel with the person that lives across the street from you. Because I'll tell you what, for a lot of us, that's outside our comfort zone. Maybe it's a commitment to start being honest and sacrificial in your giving. Whatever it is, I hope that every one of us is willing to live outside of our comfort zone and let him stretch us. All right, so that's the first point. Move outside of your comfort zone. Also, commit to holiness, commit to holiness. So after, after they moved outside of their comfort zone, the believers here in chapter 11, uh, they, they committed to holy living. They didn't just agree to live in just, just a, a newly built and remodeled city. They were coming to the holy city. They were coming to the city. See, Nehemiah was attracted by the things that, that were holy and that reminded him Uh, That the Sabbath was a distinctive day. We talked about that last week. Uh, That that temple sacrifices were set apart. Ezra, uh, Nehemiah's ministry partner, emphasized that, that God's people needed to be set apart, they needed to be holy. And Jerusalem was a place that was set apart for the Lord's use, right? What was in Jerusalem? The temple. That's right. The temple to live in Jerusalem and be given the opportunity to serve God in such a holy place was it wasn't a burden for them to leave their homes. It was a massive privilege. And they saw it as such that that privilege outweighed their sense of disappointment about leaving their friends and their families and everything they ever knew behind. And look, living in the city, living in Jerusalem, um, it was a di- it might have been a great privilege, but it was also a difficult responsibility. I mean, it's one thing to leave leave your home and go and make a new home in a holy city. But it's another thing to make a holy home or, to, or make a home holy. Right. That's a completely different thing. So living in a holy context, it didn't automatically transmit holiness to the people just because they lived there. Didn't make it didn't make them holy. They were made holy by everything uh, that everything by giving everything over to God. By laying everything at the altar at the foot of the cross, well, not at that point, not the foot of the cross, but just laying everything down to God and being submissive to His call on their life, that's what made them holy. That's what set them apart. So coming to church and doing good works and being around people, even being regularly in the presence of God doesn't make you holy. It doesn't. Living your life separate from the world because you know you're set apart for His use and constantly uh, seeking and constantly walking in His will, that's what makes you holy. All right. So committing to holiness and and, um, and and moving outside of your comfort zone. That's what they've done so far. Now, here's the third one there. They were ready to be mobilized for ministry. They were ready to mobilize for ministry. So we already saw in verse one that, that some of them were, were drafted to move. They were, they were asked to move and drafted to live in Jerusalem, but there were others who offered themselves freely to move. Uh, verse 2 in chapter 11 said, the people praised all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. So some of them went willingly, and then in the rest of chapter 11, we basically see that God always used a wide variety of people. I can see three different groups in this chapter. All of the names that we read in chapter 11, we read a a ton in chapter 12 too, but the names in the rest of this chapter of 11, uh, we can see that there were those with leadership gifts. So in addition to the leaders that were mentioned in uh, verse 1, there were also these local leaders mentioned in verse 3. These were were people that, uh, these leaders were examples to the people who were relocating to Jerusalem. Because These leaders were, were those that were out front and, and, and then for the for the others to come and to follow. Somebody once said that uh, the speed of a leader determines the speed of the team. And that's true. That's absolutely true. So there were there were those with leadership gifts. There were also those with administrative gifts. When you look at the list of names in in this chapter, there were those that served as administrators. Verse 9 says, Joel, son of uh, Zikri, was the officer over them, and Judah, son of Hassanua, was second in command over the city. So they they were these officers. These two were officers that made sure the city functioned well and and the infrastructure was sufficient to handle the growing population that was moving in. So there were those with administrative gifts. There were those with leadership gifts, and then there were those with gifts of serving. Verse 16 says that two guys had charge of the outside work of the house of God. So what that means is the temple had to be maintained. The temple had to be kept up. Uh, and These two dedicated their talent and time to care for the temple. All right, so let's personalize it. Are you mobilized for ministry? You yourself. Are you personally, individually mobilized for ministry? Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 that make it clear that every believer has at least one spiritual gift that's been given to be used. Not one person can do everything. We know that. No one person can do everything, but everybody can do something. right? So serve where you've been gifted. Don't rob the God, Don't rob God's church of your gifts that He's given you because He's given them to you to serve the kingdom and to serve the body of believers that he's put you in. And if you refuse to, you're robbing God. And you're robbing his people that you've become a family with in the body. So move outside your comfort zone. Uh, be committed to holy living. Be mobilized for ministry. Here's the fourth trait that we can emulate. And that's adore God in worship. Adore God in worship. Look at Verse 17 of chapter 11, it says that Madaniah was the leader who began thanksgiving in prayer. So so with thanksgiving, what we're doing is we're acknowledging that God is generous. That's what we do in thanksgiving. And then we pray. As we pray, we're seeking God's help. So those are two themes, thanksgiving and prayer, that the believers express pretty regularly in song. If you look at verse 22, it says, Uzzy was one of Asaph's descendants who were the singers responsible for the service of the house of God. So praise and prayer were, are, are central to the spiritual life of any believer. Praise and prayer, thanksgiving and prayer. So, so these are the four traits that we should em, em, emulate in our own lives. And these believers here in Jeru- Jerusalem moved outside of their comfort zone. They committed themselves to, to holy living. They were mobilized for ministry and they adored God in worship. And so what we're going to do now because I I ran through that real quick I want to spend more time on this fourth point and this fourth point is going to transfer into our next point I'm actually going to expound this last trait more in our second point our second point will cover chapter 12 and it's guidelines for worship guidelines for worship so how do you define worship how do you define it well, worship, and I want you to write this down, worship can be defined as worth-ship, worth W-O-R-T-H. It's where our minds and our emotions and our will are so engaged and in tune with acknowledging the worth of God. That's worship. That's true biblical worship. Our minds and our wills and our emotions are so engaged and so in tune with acknowledging the worth of God. Honestly, there's nothing else that we can do do as humans that's that's as big and massive as adoring and worshiping God. Nothing else that we can do. See, as important as it is to elect a president for our country, the determination of any believer to worship God is more important. Amen? What's our real purpose in life? What is your real purpose in this life? To worship God. Our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Starting right now. We've been made to worship, right? And if we've been made to worship, then we need to know how to do it, right? Nehemiah 12 starts with a long list of names. And then in verse 24, it helps us to see that there were two choirs that stood opposite from each other to give praise and thanksgiving. Just like we read in chapter 9, there were two choirs that standed opposite of each other as they repented. Uh, so, I want to spend some time looking at the, these these guidelines, these these guidelines for worship. There are four of them that we can glean from, from Nehemiah 12. So, the first one is the purpose of worship. The pur- first one we can see is the purpose of worship. We see it in verse 27. We, we read about this is this dedication service for this newly built wall. The Levites were brought to, it says, celebrate the joyous dedication with thanksgiving and singing. So celebration and thanksgiving and dedication are the three main themes. And that's what takes us to the heart of what worship's all about. Celebration and thanksgiving and dedication. Celebration's the primary element of worship. Right. It doesn't start with us. It doesn't. But, but with who God is and what God has said and what God has done. Thanksgiving is, is a way of, of, of standing in awe of the generosity of God. Verse 31 says that the choirs were appointed to give thanks. That was their job to give thanks. And our Thanksgiving needs to be specific. See, I think it's best when, we, when we're worshiping God and we're giving thanks to Him for the things that He's done and the things that He's said and the things that He's promised. We need to be specific. We need to make an itemized list and be specific about what we thank God for. Don't blanket Thanksgiving. Don't, don't have this blanket coverage and say, God, I thank you for everything that you've done in my life. No, be specific and thank Him for the specific blessings that He's put in your life. Right? Thank God specifically All right. And just like the believers here, when we offer ourselves in dedication, that's the third uh, theme of, of worship. Then that's when we'll be able to fully surrender ourselves to God. All right. So these three elements, celebration, Thanksgiving and dedication, they're expressed by our total existence as humans. When we celebrate, what we do is we engage our minds by remembering the things that God has said and the things God has done. When we give thanks, then what we do is we reveal our hearts. We reveal the gratitude that's in our hearts for the things that God has said and the things that God has done and the things God has promised. And in dedication, we're, we're surrendering ourselves and our lives to him. And so that's the purpose of worship. That's the purpose of worship. Now let's look at the joy of worship. So you want to know the secret to acceptable worship? The secret to worship that is acceptable to God, it's not about what we do, but it's how we do it. See, everything's a heart matter. Everything with God is, is a matter of the heart. Whether, whatever it is, whether it's worship, whether it's, it's, it's studying His Word or being in His Word, whether it's prayer, whether it's giving, whatever it is with God, it's all a matter of the heart. And these, these new residents in Jerusalem here, they were, they, were fit, they were filled up and lit up with joy. They had this opportunity to, to, to glorify God, and it was an extremely happy occasion for them. Remember in chapter 8, they, uh, they responded how they responded to reading his word. <coughs> Excuse me, chapter 8, verse 12 says, They celebrated with great joy because they now understood the words that have been made known to them. They celebrated with great joy. And in verse 17, it says when they when they made uh, their, their tents, their uh, twig tents, and they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles, that their joy was very great. So worship was never meant to be boring. Right. It was never meant to 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 be this stale thing that we do. But worship was meant to be full of joy, full of gratitude, a variety of they used a variety of gifts uh, if you look in verse 27, a uh, variety of musical gifts were used. It says they played cymbals, harps, and ly- lyres. Lyres. And verse 35 and 41 says that the priests played trumpets. So music was given a prominent place. And there was a lot of singers that joined in these two choirs, and they gave, sa- uh, gave thanks on behalf of the people. Verse 27 says, also says that they celebrated joyfully. And it, these weren't just choirs that celebrated, but these were large choirs, it says in verse 31. And in verse 43, it says that the priests offered great sacrifices and rejoiced because God had given them great joy. So there wasn't anything half hearted here about their worship, there wasn't anything half hearted about their joy either. There wasn't anything half-hearted about their adoration for God because it's the, it was the outflow of the hearts of the people who've been, who have personally experienced the love and the generosity of God. This is what their heart, that flowed out of their hearts. So we've seen the purpose of worship, the joy of worship. Now let's look at the witness of worship. And this is my favorite part. Verses 31 to 39 tell us that the leaders went on top of the wall They walked around on top of the wall. These people were used to to having workers and watchers on the wall, but now the people were allowed to be worshipers on the wall. These two choirs, these two large choirs, walked on top of the wall. One to the right, the other one went to the left. Ezra uh, led one group of of worshipers. uh, Nehemiah led the other choir. And and, I mean, this could have happened in the temple. This 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 worship service could have happened in the temple. But instead, Nehemiah wanted it to take place on the wall himself. Why do you think that was? There's three reasons. Number one, it was important for people to see and touch the walls during the dedication. It was a reminder of how faithful God had been. Number two, the people were bearing witness to the watching world that God had done all of this work. It was all because of God that these walls were rebuilt in 52 days. So God alone was the one that should have gotten all the glory out of this. The enemy, I mean, if you remember back in chapter 4, and this is the beauty of it, back in chapter 4, their enemies said that the walls were so weak that a fox could knock them down. But here were two large choirs of people walking on top of them. So the enemy brings nothing but lies. Brings nothing but lies. But they were walking and marching on them. So it was another opportunity to prove the truth. Just like it was said in chapter 6, verse 16, it says, This work has been done with the help of our God. So while they were worshiping on top of the walls, everybody could see what was happening. Not just them that were there gathered around the walls, but everybody around could see. Verse 43 says, The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. So they could hear their worship. They could see for miles the worship and the praise of God. And then the third reason that this march around the walls, um, it was because it was so symbolic, symbolic of their of, of of them stepping out in faith to claim the blessing of God. And that day to walk on a piece of property meant that you claimed it as your own. Joshua 1.3 said, God said to Joshua, I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. All right. So we see the, the purpose of worship. We see the joy of worship. We saw the witness of worship. And now let's look at the response of worship. These closing verses in chapter 12 show us uh, another aspect of real biblical worship. The offering of our money as well as our time and our service. To the work of God. See, after the dedication was over, there was provision made for continual worship. Verse 47 says, All Israel contributed to the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers. They also set aside the portion for, their, for the other Levites, and the Levites set aside the portion for the descendants of Aaron. So it was organized and it was specific, it was thankful and it was regular. But most of all, the people gave in response to who God is. And what God had done on their behalf. Thomas Adams, who was he was a Puritan. He said this. He said, let us do good with our goods while we live to part with what we cannot keep that we may get what we cannot lose. That's the response of worship. That's the response of pouring out of everything. Buffy's used the illustration before of, of, of the man who or girl who, who stepped inside of the, of the offering plate when it came around. That was symbolic of giving everything that, that they had to God and offering themselves everything. Their money, their time, their talents, everything that they have offering it to God. That's the response of worship is offering everything that you have because guess what? It doesn't belong to you. It belongs to Him. You're just stewards of it so what are you doing with it? Are you offering every bit of it back to him? Does he hold that that zeal that kind of place in your life, or does he not? Let's pray, Father, Lord, I, I just thank you for for today Lord as we as we enter this time of of, of, of invitation and worship, I, I pray that every one of our hearts are open and our ears are open to the words that are about to be said. I'm asking you that Lord now because it's only your spirit that can do what I pray is about to happen amongst us this morning. Lord, we have prayed to you fervently, I believe, over the last several months for for revitalization. We have prayed to you for to, to rebuild this body. And Lord, I'm not going to stand up here and, 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 and say that I've seen it happen because I don't know that if I had that I have. But what I have seen. Happen. Is that you can work with a group of people. That You can work through a group of people, no matter the size of that group of people. But those people have to be completely, totally submitted unto you. And so I pray that that's what happened this morning. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would go to work amongst us. I'm asking you that now in the holy, righteous, glorious, beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So, the next few years, or or the next year, not the next few years, the next few months, the next year, it's going to be a crazy time for our country as we go to the polls and elect a president next November, but the the leading up to that is going to be absolutely ridiculous. Um, So, right now we're kind of in a holding pattern, right? We're kind of in this holding pattern, but But as I thought about it, and as I do think about it, I'm reminded of what Joel 3.14 says. It says, multitudes and multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. So as important as it is for us to elect government officials, we're faced with an even greater decision. Joel pictures millions of people in the valley called decision. And one day the Lord is coming back. Is he not? He's coming back those who cast the ballot of their lives for the Lord, those are who will be saved, those are the people that will see him, that will, that will be able to commune with him and live with him and love him and spend, be in his presence for all of eternity, but those who have it will face the eternal condemnation and there's not going to be any recounts right ultimately there are really only two questions to be asked the first one is this, is Jesus resident in your life Is he resident in your life? Have you elected to receive him into your life by turning from your sin and crying out to him? If not, that's what you need to do this morning. There's no, there's no, um, today's the day of salvation, right? In eternity, there's no second chances. The second question is this, is Jesus president of your life? Are you living under his lordship and leadership? Is he on the throne or are you? See, Jesus is Savior, but he but he but he's also um, he's he's our forgiver, he's also our Lord and leader. He doesn't only want to be resident, he wants to be president of your life. Resident and president. So we gotta understand and believe that, that every one of us in this room are sinners. We're all sinners. We're God's enemies, is what the Bible says, because because we sin in our thoughts, so we sin in our attitudes, we sin in our actions. And because we've broken his laws, and so we're separated from him, right? God's perfect, right? He's holy. He's perfect. He's just. So he can't accept our sinful hearts. He's the one who initiates the reconciliation back to himself. And he he did that by, by coming to the earth and being born as a baby. He grew into a man and he died on the cross to take the punishment of everyone that would ever believe in him on himself. And he did that so that those that would believe on him could be forgiven of our sinfulness. We can't try to earn our way back to God by our own efforts. It was completely paid for by the effort and work of Christ on the cross. So how do you receive the forgiveness? How do you receive God's forgiveness? By personally believing that you're sinful and in need of a right relationship with him. By by coming to understand that that it's a personal trust in the death of Jesus and the resurrection that makes you stand right with him. By being willing to stop living your life in sin and allowing him to be the Lord, the boss, the president of your life. And, and I pray this morning that, that if you're living here, if you're here and you're living separated from him, that you would respond as, as the Holy Spirit prompts you. If you believe yourself to be saved but you're not living like it, then, then it's time to rededicate your walk with the Lord. And, and I would ask you during this time of invitation to, to come as the Holy Spirit prompts you. Because here, here it is. As, as a church, as a body, we're at a crossroads. We are. More than you think and more than you realize, we're at a crossroads here at Crossway. We've gotten off track and we need to rededicate our church back to God. But it starts with each and every one of us individually. We, we need to realize that we need to commit or recommit our walks back to God. So as we start this time of invitation, I want you to come and do that. Everybody in this house, come and do it. Don't stay in your seats. Come and do it. I, I know all of our personal walks with God aren't perfect. I know they're not. And they're know that they're not what they should be, Mine included. So during this time of invitation, if you're dedicated to revitalizing and rebuilding Crossway, then come to the altar and pray God, pray that God would give you a new and fresh desire for him, his word, his people, this church. Everybody come to the altar and rededicate this church back to God. Miss Brenda, if you'll just play. Let's not stand and sing because I expect everyone to come to the altar and pray for Crossway. We're not going to sing this morning, but as she as she plays, let's all come to the altar and let's all cry out to God for him to rededicate for us to rededicate this church back to him. Come now as the Holy Spirit leads you.